Well, good morning, everybody. Just a couple of announcements. Um, our men's Bible study will not be this week. It will be next Wednesday at 7 p.m. down in Sebula, the northern suburb of the big old town of Annapolis. And so if anybody wants to join us, that's available. And then also we're going to be doing a church picnic, uh, not this week, not the next week, uh, but actually on August 30th, which is the last Sunday night of August, it'll be at 6 p.m. And we'll have food uh, around 6. Um, then we'll have swimming at the AV City Pool at 7.30. So we'll have food at 6. It'll be outside the gates. There's a play area for kids. There's tables. And we're going to have, I think, sub-sandwiches. Um, but if anybody has any questions, uh, we'll be providing the drinks and the sub-sandwiches. And anybody that wants to bring some friends, do this. This is an opportunity. We can invite people that wouldn't normally show up at church. Uh, people that don't have a home church, for them to see, hey, you know, the body of Christ is more than just uh, whatever way you perceive to be going to church, but it's about the fellowship that we have as believers. And many times people don't see that unless they come to one of our events, you know, when we all corporately get together. And so it's a way to, number one, have fellowship with one another, and number two, invite others that are not, you know, of us or don't feel apart. So um, that'll be on August 30th for anybody that, that wants to invite friends and bring your families, you know, bring everybody. The pool's big enough, we'll have plenty of food, and so it'll be a, a fun time. And of course, it's kind of another way to kind of say bye-bye to summer as we know it, because it's kind of getting towards fall. Um, so we want to have a, you know, I, I would like to go swimming all year round, but I, you know, this time of year is pretty much the best time to go. And uh, so anyway, that'll be an opportunity in August. So, if you got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, and turn them to Romans chapter 14. Uh, here in Romans chapter 14, Paul continues his discussion and his teaching on presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable before the Lord, which is your reasonable service. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he lays out basically the theme for the next couple of chapters. And that theme will kind of stop in 15, around half to three quarters of the way through, and he's going to talk about some other things. But in the meantime, we're in this section where he's giving some very practical ways to live out our Christian walk. And it's interesting that, you know, just a few weeks ago when Steve taught, he was talking about how we are to no longer be conformed to the image of this world. And I'm like, okay, well, how do you visualize that? Well, Steve gave us a perfect example of the ice cube. If you leave an ice cube in a glass and the effects of all the things outside of that ice cube, mainly heat, what does it do? It melts, and then it's conformed to the image of that glass. And as it's conformed to the image of that glass, it's no longer transformed into the image of that ice cube holder. And we have been called out of the glass into, into this new marvelous light. We've been placed in the, basically, you know, the, to keep with the example, we've been placed into an ice cube tray, and God is applying the coldness or removing the heat from us, removing the ways of the world from us 
so that we can now be fit into the, not the ice cube tray image, but the image of Christ. He is our ice cube tray, if you want to call it that. And he's called us out of the glass. Now, the problem is, is that as Christians, he didn't, you know, freeze us in the freezer and then leave us in the freezer. He took us out of the freezer and says, I want you to remain in the glass, but don't be conformed to its image. And we as Christians have been called out of the world and into a relationship with our creator. We've been transformed. We're called to no longer be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed continually is the idea by the renewing of our minds to go back to the freezer, to go back to the source of life, Jesus. Now, obviously we don't want to call him a freezer because he's given us true warmth and meaning and purpose. We now no longer look at this life as futile and vain, but we look at it as, hey, we're here for a reason. And so Paul, last week as we studied Romans 13, he had talked about two ways in Romans 13 of ways that we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. No longer thinking like the rest of the world, but thinking like the, like the, the Lord would have us think and act and do in this world. And he dealt, number one, with the Christian's response to the government in the place which he lives. And this is a hard topic to deal with, but we talked about it last week, so we don't have to talk about it again. And then in the second section, he talked about how we are to interact with one another, how we're supposed to love our neighbor. And I look at that as how we love those outside of the church. Now, our neighbor is, in fact, those that are inside the body, but it's, it's a lot easier to love those that agree with us than to love those that disagree with us. And so Paul knows that, and he says, hey, you know, here's some things that I've experienced, and here's the way that the Lord calls us to live. So this week, we, we stop looking outside and we look inside. Because one of the biggest problems with the present day church, and it was back then too, is okay, how do I interact with people that are supposed to be like-minded, but whose opinions on certain doctrines differ, differ even slightly from mine? How am I supposed to, to love my neighbor inside the church, even though they might take some liberties where I wouldn't, and I have a disagreement with them? And debates get very heated over doctrines that are in Scripture that are not clearly defined. And so we start to quabble about this and that and about what I would call open-handed issues. Now, open-handed issues are different from closed-handed issues, things that we shouldn't let go of. Uh, things like salvation by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone of should boast. Paul was very emphatic. He said salvation can be had by no other name given among men. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. If somebody comes in and says, hey, there's another name by which you can be saved or there's another way, well then you can go ahead and disregard that because that's false, that's <laughs> blasphemy. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, singular. And so we can hold that one closed fist until the day we see the Lord and we will not be judged for being closed-minded in that way. But there are other issues that the church oftentimes spends much time kind of quabbling about and the Lord's like, hey, that's not an issue that we need to spend time hacking away at each other about. And so in this particular chapter, Paul spends a little bit of time, actually he spends double the time that he did dealing with government, and he spends double the time that we, he did dealing with loving our neighbor. 
He says, this is a big issue, let's take some time to deal with it. Because whether we're at that spot as a church or not, there's going to come a time where we might be there. We start to forget what the reason is, why we are saved, and who saved us. And we start to measure ourselves against each other in our walks of faith. And we start to kind of, you know, well, he's got more points than I do. You know, brownie points, heaven brownie points, if you will. And so Paul says, here's some ways that we need to learn to deal with one another. And you guys know this. Even in your own homes, it's a lot easier to give people grace that you don't live with every day than it is to give grace to the people that you live with every day. You know, I struggle with that myself. I can give the guy down the street a lot more grace than I can my own wife. And yet uh, she gives me way more grace because I live with her. She knows every little nitty gritty detail, every little fault that I have. And so when you know the faults of others, when you spend more time with others, it's a lot harder to live out that daily Christian walk. So Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, he says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. But not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak only eats vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant to his own master? He stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So he's asking the question, he says, you know, number one, you are to receive one another. How are we supposed to interact with other Christians in the body of Christ? This goes beyond this, this particular fellowship. This goes to First Baptist. This goes to Fort Hill, Apostolic. That, this goes to, uh, you know, the... All of the faiths that are in this little valley and in our nation that call on the name of Jesus, that believe the word of God to be inerrant, that believe Jesus to be the only way for salvation, that study the word of God and believe it to be the the word specifically breathed by God, we are to receive them. He says, well, how are we to receive them? Well, he doesn't get real specific. He just says receive them. Well, he says... The only disclaimer I will give you is the way that you're not to receive them is just to have arguments. Don't receive them to get together and talk about what you disagree on. And he'll get past that point, but he wants to make that distinction. Don't just have them over to your house so you can argue about doctrine. Why? Well, he'll get to the point later. It causes division. And it doesn't help people see the Lord. It helps people see that we're just like everybody else. There's really no difference. We just get together on a particular day and we worship Jesus, but it doesn't look like we all have the same common faith. And so he says, don't receive one another to dispute over what? Doubtful things. And that's what I'm calling the open-handed issues. You can have a, a disagreement with someone, like I said, if they say there's another way to be saved. But when it comes to someone who is saved and they have a dispute with you about how you worship or you have a dispute with them about how they worship, whether it's like this morning, whether you're sitting down or standing up. Some people would say, well, you're not, you can't be a Christian and sit down and have worship. What are you thinking? Well, does the Bible teach that? No, it doesn't. It says everything that you do, do it to the glory of God, Colossians chapter three. 
So that includes the way you worship, your posture. Some people would say, well, you can't pray with your eyes open. Now, this isn't a big issue, but it could be. People split over little things. Churches break up because of little things like that. And so we're to be very aware of the hills that we're dying on. Is this really something that I need to cause division in the church about? Or is this something that's a pet peeve of mine and I might need to get over and mature a little bit? He says, receive those who are weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. And then he gives two examples of doubtful things. I love this because he gives two examples not to come to a conclusion about them, but he gives two examples of things that people die on, hills that people were dying on in that day that were causing division in the church, not to give instruction on here's the answer, here's the conclusion, but to say, these are some things that you maybe need to loosen your grip on a little bit and love those that are in the church. He talks about eating foods, all foods, or the group that's only eating vegetables. Now, I'm in the group that says, I got liberty, I can eat any food I want. I don't have to go back to the Old Testament where it teaches that they were not to eat certain shellfish. They weren't supposed to be shellfish, they were eating speed. They were not supposed to eat certain selfish. Shellfish. <laughs> I shouldn't have went there. Don't eat certain shellfish. They couldn't eat pig. I'm a big fan of bacon. But they could not eat bacon. That was just their Old Testament law. And it was supposed to set them apart. And really it was a dietary restriction because of their diet, they would live longer. It's just a practical thing. If you layer your, your diet with lots of extra saturated fats and, and pork, uh, the reality is you're probably not going to live as long as somebody that just eats vegetables. But the question comes up is, are you more holy if you eat all things? You have the freedom to do that. Or are you more holy if you only partake of certain things? You, you give up certain foods. Well, the answer is no. Because God doesn't look at the outward. He doesn't look at our, just our actions. He looks at the heart behind why we do what we do. And then he talks about another one, starting in verse 5. He says, one person esteems one day above another, and another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. That's the way that we can eat to the Lord. Uh, let me tell you this. Uh, this is something that I was convicted about last year. Holidays came around, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and you know, there's always meals. There's always extra food laying around. And I was feeling crummy because I wasn't getting outside. And so I was like, hey, how do I know when it's time to stop eating? You know, because I'm a young guy still, I, I like to eat. And when there's food around, I don't like to waste it. How can I make sure that I'm eating unto the Lord as a worship to the Lord? Well, if I can't give thanks for it before I eat it, maybe I shouldn't eat it. You know, and there were times where I'd sit down and there'd be that fourth piece of pumpkin pie in front of me. And I wouldn't even want to pray about it. And I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't have it. If I can't give thanks to the Lord and the thing that I'm doing, maybe it's not something I should be doing. And so that was just a little side note uh, from something personally I had experienced. But he, he says, you know, 
He who observes one day, observes it to the Lord. He who says, no, no, I'm free so I can worship any day and I'm supposed to live every day as a day of worship to the Lord. Then let him be convinced in his own mind. And there are groups. Uh, There's one group in particular called the Seventh-day Adventist. And they will make it their aim to talk to you if you believe that it's time to worship on Sunday only. They'll say, "Uh uh-uh, we're supposed to worship on the Sabbath. Well, what are they doing? They're picking up the Old Testament law. They're saying, well, the Old Testament, they were to worship on the Sabbath. Well, why do they think that? Well, if you remember in Genesis, when God created, he created on day one, two, three, four, five, six, and on the seventh day, he rested. So they believe, and I believe this too, that God started creating on Sunday, and on Saturday, he was done. So he rested. Not because God was worn out, but because that he wanted to set an example. Uh, just like your car. You take your car and you drive it so many miles and the manufacturer says, hey, it's time to change the oil. They do that because that oil is worn out. It's time for it to be replaced. And the Lord in the same way is our manufacturer. He says, hey, if you will work six days and take a rest on the seventh, you're going you're gonna, to you're, you're gonna be in better shape. You're gonna, it's going to be good for you. You're going to learn that sometimes you just need to, to give it a break. And so the, the Seventh-day Adventist says, well, that's when the Old Testament church, the Old Testament faith, that's when they worshiped, and so that's when we're going to worship. Well, here's the problem I have with that, them standing on that hill and saying, we're going to die here. They're not preaching salvation. They're preaching, don't do this. And what they're telling you is that you can't worship the day on any other day. Well, the Sabbath day rest was really a picture of what Jesus would do for us. He is our Sabbath. We rest because he did all the work. He died on the cross. He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law so you and I don't have to. So that makes us be able to fight or serve from a place of rest. Diligently seeking to be in the rest of the Lord, knowing that nothing we can do can add to the faith And so, because of that, we're able to worship on any day. But if somebody says to you, you can only worship on such and such a day, to the person that recognizes you don't have to worship on a certain day, let them be convinced in their own mind. Don't argue with them. Don't try to convince them that Sunday is the only day to worship, because it's not either. Uh, The reality is, the New Testament church, they decided to worship on Sunday for one reason. That's the day Jesus rose. That's the day that he ascended to the Father. And so they said, hey, let's remember this. Let's worship on this day. But they didn't teach it as you can only worship on this day. And so even the stance that says, no, it's on Sunday. It's not right, biblically. Every day is a day to worship the Lord. And so, for not, and then he says, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, he talks about eating again, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. And then he says in verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. Well, I take that to mean no one has freedom to himself, and no one gives up things to himself. So he's talking about the the person that's stronger in the faith is actually someone that recognizes I'm free to live for the Lord in whatever way he leads me. And the weaker one 
is actually the more legalistic one. The one who says, I can only do it on this day. I can only do it this way. If you want to meet somebody that's legalistic, it's me. And I'm saying that personally. I particularly have certain ideas about the faith, and I'm not going to push them on you, but they're things that I struggle with. If I don't read my Bible in the morning, you know what I feel? Guilt and shame and condemnation. Is that from the Lord? No. That's because I'm legalistic in some ways, and the Lord's still working on me. Now, if someone else comes along to me and says, well, I can read the Bible any day, any time during the day, I say, cool, I'm not there yet. I really feel like I need to fuel up before I go drive for the day. And that's where I'm at. But the problem with that is sometimes I beat myself down and it's not a burden that the Lord meant for me to carry. I need to be free. I need to recognize God has saved me to be free. And if I don't get my reading in the, in the morning, the reality is Jesus loves me just the same. He loves me just the same whether I read every day or every other day, whether I read a whole chapter or whether I read one sentence. He just wants to spend time with me. It's not about the form or the fashion. It's about the heart behind it. So let each man be convinced in his own way. But at the same time, let him put the Lord first. And so, therefore, whether we live, in other words, whether we have the freedom to live as however we want, or whether we die, whether we feel like God's called us to give up certain rights or freedoms or, or anything like that, we are the Lord's either way. For to this end, verse 9, Christ died and he rose and he lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead, those who have given things up, and the living, those who have taken on freedoms. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, we're accountable to him. And so if, if you've got someone in your life that takes what you would see as excessive freedoms, maybe they feel free that they can drink a little bit, or maybe they feel free that they can um, you know, overeat, or whatever the thing is, they, maybe they smoke. You know, For a lot of people, they, you can't smoke and be a Christian. How dare you? Or you can't chew. But the cool thing is, is as the Lord maybe convicts them one way or the other, they can do that to the Lord as well. I know of one young man that decided recently, you know what? My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to give up uh, chewing. He's a chewer. And he's been doing it for probably more of his life than he's been not. And so he decided, you know what? I'm going to give this thing up, and the Lord can take care of it. And it took him some work. And he had to trust the Lord to do it. And it was uncomfortable because he was addicted to it, just like anything else we can be addicted to. But he gave it up. But you know what he's not doing? He's not walking around to every person that chews or smokes and saying, God doesn't love you because you're doing that. What he does is he's, he just knows that the Lord has done that in his life. And if he knows somebody that's struggling with it, he says, hey, I've been there. God can deliver you from that. But until then, he still loves you just the same, whether you quit or not. You know, it's not about that. And so, we're all accountable to the Lord personally. Verse 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, verse 12, Each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. And the idea there is not somebody that is just despising, but it's, it's looking at someone and saying they cannot do that and be a Christian. There's no way. 
Because there are people that walk around and they have certain, they, they're sin sniffers. And they say, hey, you do that thing, therefore you cannot be saved. I doubt that you're saved at all. And he says, why, why do you judge your brother? God has received him, why don't you? And then in the other side of it, he says, you know, why do you despise the one who, who doesn't take particular freedoms? So in either way, and I know I'm kind of beating this horse to death, but the reality is Paul spent a lot of time talking about this because it was a real issue. They were all walking around judging each other. And the more time you spend with people, whether you love them or not, you're going to find their faults and you might be tempted to grab hold of them and not let go. Rather than recognizing that Jesus died for them just like he did for you. And so, he says, verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So he, he's going to the other side of the argument. He says, number one, don't judge people because they're taking extra freedoms. But at the same time, if you have freedoms, you know that you can do certain things and it's, and it's not going to change the way whether you're saved or not, then recognize that by you taking advantage of your freedoms, there are other people in the body of Christ that you might stumble. Uh, so, uh, let me turn uh, to Galatians, excuse me, yeah, Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Because Paul talks about this just ever so briefly, briefly. That is, if I can find it. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, no, First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians. I really ought to get some bookmarks. There it is. Galatians is before Ephesians. Okay, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, and he's writing to the Galatian church, which was prone to make more rules and try to add things to their faith. There was people that had come into the Galatian church and says, yeah, Jesus is good for salvation, but you need to add this, this, and this, and then it'll be better. And what... Paul basically wrote in the book of Galatians is he said, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you're trusting in Jesus and something else, you're making Jesus of no worth. He alone is perfect for salvation. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty or the freedom by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Then go down to verse 13. He says, for you, brethren have been called to liberty. Anytime you see the word liberty, just insert the word freedom. You've been called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, this is the same theme we were on last week. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. He says, I say then, verse 16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish, but you are led by the spirit, excuse me, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And so he says, if you want to live in unity with one another, 
Even though Christ has set you free and that all things are lawful, he says, if it causes someone around you to stumble, it's no longer lawful. Because if your freedom puts someone else in bondage, then it's not freedom. It's really just a vice, and it's some way an opportunity for the flesh. And so Paul says, consider one another. Verse 14 of Galatians 14 says this, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If there's somebody among you that has something that to him it is a no, 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 he can't go back to it, and you have freedom in it, be sensitive to that other person's need. And I always use this as an example because I think it's probably one of the most untold and unforeseen things that people struggle with, and that's alcoholism. Uh, Many people in the Christian church believe, hey, we've got freedom to drink, and the Bible really doesn't die on that hill. All it says is do not be drunk. Do not let it control you. Ephesians chapter 5 actually says that. It says, be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation or loss of control, but be filled with the Spirit. Everybody always spends all their time going, you're not supposed to be drunk. But they don't ever see the whole point of that verse. The point of the verse is, don't be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit of God. Something else is taking control of you, and it's not the Spirit of God, you're not walking in the Spirit. Don't let anything control you. That can be drinking, that can be drugs, that can be uh, the love of your family can control you and take you outside of the will of God. There are many things that control us. He's saying be controlled by the Spirit. But he's saying here, to him who considers anything to be unclean, whether it is or not, he's convinced in his own mind, don't lay a stumbling block. Don't, Don't set a trap in front of him that will trip him. And for alcohol especially, many people that struggle with alcoholism have been freed from it are very quiet about it. And so if they're walking down the street and they see you at the bar, you taking your liberty or your freedom might stumble them and they might go, you know, they've got the freedom and they'll go back and they'll be entangled by it because they don't have that freedom. Because for them, that there were so many years that have been lost because of it that it's a struggle and For them to see anybody that's in Christ doing that will completely knock them off the wagon. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And so what he's saying is, be careful. Walk lightly. Walk in humility. Be meek about it. Because there's other people around you. No one lives or dies to themselves. If that makes sense. And so, verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food or your freedom that you take, whether it's food or something else, You are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food or your freedom the one for whom Christ died. And that's the the main point. Christ died for each one of us individually. And if we stumble or lay a stumbling block in front of someone, then what we're doing is we're basically saying, hey, it doesn't matter. But Christ died for them, so it does matter. And that's the reason that each one of us has value because Christ died for us. He says, therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not about what you eat or what you drink or your freedoms. But it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, My pastor sings a song with his kids that goes along this line. 
It says, For the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. And that's what it's about. If you, by partaking in your freedom, whether it's meat or drink or some practical area of your life, cause there to no longer be righteousness, peace, and joy in someone else's life, then you're taking your liberty and you're stumbling someone else and it's no longer liberty. Verse 18, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. One of the ways that you can serve Christ is by being sensitive to those who are around you who are also in Christ and serving Him, number one, by being sensitive to each other's needs, by being sensitive to what stumbles one another. And this is what makes it acceptable, is if you will be sensitive to those things, and if somebody might be stumbled by what you do, maybe no longer expressing, I've got liberty, or I've got freedom to do this, but going, I'm going to give up my freedom for the sake of my brother. You know, we live in a country, we live in a culture that says, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I don't care who it affects. Whether it's because of the flag you wave, or because of the, the lifestyle that you live, or whether it's because of just some political stance that you take. We wave it in people's eyes and in their faces and we flaunt it because we don't care. But the reality is, is that's not freedom. Freedom sets us free. And freedom is offered to everyone alike. And the body of Christ is not to be that way. We don't have the freedom to say, I'm going to do whatever I want and I don't care what anybody else thinks. Because the reality is, is that if it's going to stumble somebody else, it's no longer freedom. He doesn't just tell us what not to do. I love this about Paul. Every time he's in a passage where he's instructing us, be careful, watch out, don't do this, do that, he also gives us instruction on what to do. And so in verse 19, he starts there. He says, therefore, in light of what I've just written, Therefore, let us all pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may be edified, uh, excuse me, the things by which one may edify another. He says, build one another up. Don't tear one another down. Don't take what God is doing and hinder it. Don't get in the way of what God's doing in someone's life. He says, verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Then have it to yourself before God. Happy or blessed is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So sometimes I believe it takes more faith to give up our rights than it does to take on more freedoms, if that makes sense. Uh, Jesus is described in Philippians chapter 2. He considered it not robbery to be equal with God, and yet he gave up his rights, his freedoms, as the sovereign creator of the universe he had the right to remain in heaven, and yet he gave up those rights. He took on the form of a man. He took on the form of a slave. He came down to us in order to die in our place, in order to express the heart of the Father to each one of us, to represent God in that way. 
And so we too, to one another, have this opportunity to step down from our positions of having specific rights in order to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. He says in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, we're going to go about six verses in. He says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. In other words, considering someone else's needs above mine. He says, leading to edification, the word meaning to build up. For even Christ did not please himself. See, if you're going to give up your rights, don't do it because I do it. Don't do it because your, your neighbor does it. Don't do it because someone told you to do it. Always look to our example. Our example should always be Christ. And I say that because many people build up what they do and why they do it because someone else told them it would be good. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that person's opinion might change. If you're going to serve the Lord in any way, if you're going to give up your rights in some certain way, do it for the sake that the Lord showed you to do it, not because I told you or someone else did that's further along than you. Because the reality is, is Jesus, if he tells you to do something, he'll always tell you to do it. It'll be the same. He doesn't change. I do. People do. He says, for even Christ, and this is our example, did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's Jesus speaking. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. He says now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may with one another, excuse me, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the purpose of us dwelling together in unity, loving one another, not stumbling one another. It's so that we may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this because I think about this and I think about how sometimes our divisions and our disagreements can cause disunity. And I think about what David wrote in Psalm chapter 133. When I get there, I'm thinking about it, but then I'm going to read it. In Psalm 133, he said this. He says, look, or behold. I like that word, behold. The word behold is what you do when you look at a baby when it's been first born. You pick it up, you look at it, you examine it, there's excitement. This is this new creation. There's awe. Look at the creation of God. But he says there, he says, behold, or look, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then he gives an example that they would understand, but maybe we don't. He said, it's, here's what, what it's like when brethren dwell together in unity. He says, it's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard. We're like, what? Why would there be oil on someone's beard? Why is the, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments? It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, when I think of oil spilled on someone's beard, I think about me changing the oil on my vehicle. 
and it get you know I, like I'm taking the drain plug out and the oil spills and it splashes and it gets all over me and I'm thinking I'm dirty. That's that's not exciting. I don't want unity if unity makes me dirty. Uh, but the idea is the oil in the Old Testament is always a picture of the presence of the Lord in the midst of the people. And another example of what the oil was for is in in the in Psalm 23 where the writer David is explaining, he's talking about the Lord being his shepherd. He said, he anoints my head with oil. And what they would do is they would use that oil, that olive oil, they'd put it on the head of the, the lamb in order to avert bugs from landing on that animal. And what would happen is if those bugs were you know, around the eyes and around the mouth and, or, and on the head of the, the lamb, it would get anxious and it would run around and it would drive it literally crazy. Much like many times in churches where people are around another, one another all the time, they start to drive each other crazy and irritate one another. And what the Lord says is, I want to anoint the church with the oil of my spirit. And it will be like oil on the head of that lamb. It will keep all the irritants away because you'll be anointed by the Holy Spirit. My presence will be what brings you all together. And so... That's what he's talking about in Psalm 133. That's what he's talking about in Psalm 23. That oil of gladness that anoints us and gives us unity. And I have one more place that I want to go, and it's in James uh, chapter 3, verse 13. He says there, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom that he has is not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But... The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, it's full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The body of Christ is supposed to be this group of people that's been anointed by the Spirit of God that has unity, has one mind, is peaceable, willing to yield, gentle with one another, full of mercy and good fruit. And the reality is, is if, if the world sees a church that's been truly anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, if the world sees that unity that comes from the one who brought us all together, Jesus, it will see that and it will see that we're following something that has nothing to do with anything they've experienced anymore because if there's anything that's common in this whole world, it's the disunity, it's the war, it's the lack of peace, it's the irritation, it's the aggravation. But in the body of Christ, it's not supposed to be that way. And so Paul instructs them in a very practical and yet a very impractical way that we are to consider one another's needs above the other. Even in matters of what we believe to be hard-nosed doctrines, we need to check ourselves to make sure that those are actually things we're willing to stumble our brother about. Because many times, uh, we tell people to do things because it's really our own opinion. 
And I'll give you one example of that and I'll close. And it was actually Jesus' disciples. Jesus had the same issue with his disciples in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, uh, he had been walking with his disciples for a while. He'd been casting out demons. He'd been doing mighty works and miracles in the name of Jesus. And there in verse 38, it says this. John was speaking to Jesus and he said, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow us. And Jesus said, Do not forbid him for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon, after, can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So what John has said is what we oftentimes think. He says, hey, I saw that that guy was being used by God, but he wasn't doing it. He wasn't following us. So we probably shouldn't be doing it. He's not doing it our way. And what Jesus says is, no, absolutely not. If he's not against us, he's for us. Just because he's not following... Notice what he says there in verse um, 38. He says, we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. Now, they're not supposed to follow us. Who are they supposed to follow? Jesus. They were following Jesus' example. And so Jesus says, leave them alone. They're following me. They're not supposed to follow you. They're not supposed to only have church in a non-practical or traditional way in a storefront. If people don't have church in a storefront, let them be. If they're worshiping Jesus, that's his kingdom. They're his servants. Who are we to judge another man's servant? Who, we, who are we to judge our God's servant? If they like stained glass and they need that in order to worship the Lord, let it rip. Let them worship the Lord where they're comfortable. My prayer is that people would feel free to worship and they would be encouraged to worship where they feel comfortable to worship Jesus. Many people cannot do church unless it's in a traditional building. You know what? Let them do it. Let God bring people here who will be, feel comfortable in a storefront that maybe they don't feel comfortable in a place where they're stained glass. Maybe they don't feel comfortable in a pew. They've got their reasons for that. Let each one be convinced in his own way. But let them all, all follow Jesus wholeheartedly, fully, in holiness and in sanctification. Let God make the changes that he wants to make in their lives. But until he makes those changes, it's going to take more faith to just bear with them until they get there. And that takes us too. You know, I put my title slide up there today. We are to receive the weak. And the reality is the whole body of Christ is a bunch of weak. We're all weak. We all have things that, that we struggle with. We all have things that, stuff that's going to irritate somebody else. And if we can't give grace to people in the house of the Lord, we won't be able to give grace to those who are outside the faith. We won't have a good testimony around them. And so God has to change each one of us individually. And in the meantime, while it's a big fat mess, we have to love one another. Not because we're easy to love, but because... Christ first loved us. So this morning, we're going to do communion because we do it at the first of every month, even though we didn't do it last month. 
But what I love about communion is that it reminds us all of our common bond, our common... If you eat with someone, it causes there to be a deeper fellowship than if you've never had a meal with them, if you've never walked a mile in their shoes. It's something that's a humbling experience because we all chew with our mouth open or closed or we make noises and we spit when we talk while we're eating. And, you know, there's a fellowship that happens when you share meals with people. And Jesus did that many times. Uh, Many times if he really wanted to get to know somebody, he'd say, hey, I'm going to eat with you tonight. But with his disciples at the end of his ministry, on the time when they celebrated Passover, the last time before he went to be crucified, he says, hey, let's celebrate the Passover together. And there was preparation made. And then he distributed the food. And so this morning, we're going to distribute the food. In Luke chapter 22, it says this. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. He took the bread... He gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. You can imagine that that's kind of a weird thing for him to say because how are we supposed to remember you? We're looking at you. What do you mean in remembrance of me? And what he was telling them is I want you to continue to partake of this supper because you're going to need it periodically to be reminded that, that I'm the one, I'm your source of life. Until I come, continue to take of it. And likewise, verse 20, he also took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is, my, is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. Truly the Son of Man goes as it was, has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question among themselves which of them it was to, who would do this thing. And so they got together and they had the Lord's Supper together. And so I believe that it's a fitting time to take this, not only because we do it once a month, but also because, you know, maybe there are some things that you look at other Christians and you judge them. Or maybe you despise them. You don't judge them. You believe they're Christians, but you despise them because they take advantage of a lot of freedoms that you really don't believe they have. Well, let's come back to the table and remember that we're all a family in Christ. We who call on the name of the Lord to be saved, that's the only thing that's saving us anyway. And he who is faithful, he who began the good work, let's pray for them. If there's really some things we think are going to be pitfalls, pray for one another that God would do those changes. We don't have to change each other. The Holy Spirit is perfect at that. It should take a lot of weight off our shoulders. We don't have to judge one another because God's going to do that judging. We're all accountable to Him. And so let's take this meal together. What I'm going to do is we're going to sing a song of worship. Come up as you feel led. Grab a a cup and some cracker. Go back to your seat. And I'll lead you through communion after we sing this song.